Today in Minneapolis, Minnesota, there will be a memorial service for George Floyd, the black man who died under the knee of a white police officer just over a week ago, setting off protests and mayhem on the streets of American cities ever since. This is a story that continues to develop. Yesterday, authorities in Minnesota increased the charge against the police officer who pressed his knee into George Floyd's neck. That officer is now charged with a more serious count of second-degree murder. Charges now laid against three other police officers who were on the scene. They are now charged with aiding and abetting second-degree murder. Of course, the turmoil in American streets has continued. U.S. President Donald Trump has threatened to deploy U.S. military in the streets of American cities to restore order. While all this is going on, there is, of course, a continuing debate about police tactics and police training. And not only in America, but here in Canada as well. We hear calls for improved police training and oversight in Canada in the aftermath of the killing of George Floyd. We want to focus on that in our first segment of the show today. I'm very pleased to welcome back to the program Tom Stamatakis. He is the president of the Canadian Police Association. Uh, that's a familiar name to a lot of people in Vancouver. He was a long-serving Vancouver police officer, former head of the Vancouver Police Officers Union. I'm very pleased to welcome him. Hi. Hello, how are you? I'm, I'm good. Thanks for taking the time. Um, a lot has happened in just over a week. When, when we go back to the start of this and with the, the death of George Floyd, when, when you watched that, the video yourself and, and you saw that police officer with his, his knee on, on uh, George Floyd's neck for over eight minutes, what went through your mind? What did you think when you saw that? Well, obviously it was um, something that I don't think any police officer uh, would have liked to have watched. Um, and... and you know the out- outcome was obviously tragic and and, and continues today. Um, something that you never want to see. What did you think of that tactic? I mean, is that a is that an approved method to s- secure someone who's under arrest to to put the, put a knee on a neck like that? Have you ever seen a move like that, or is, have you ever been taught something like that as a police officer? <clears throat> Well, first, let me just say, you know, that in in Canada, that's not an approved tactic. I think there are times when incidents occur, they unfold very dynamically, and it's very difficult to control someone. There are all kinds of things that can happen. But in terms of our training, that's not an approved tactic. In fact, in police training in Canada, police officers are consistently reminded right from the time they start in the police academy or their police training facility that, there are certain areas that you need to stay completely away of, and the neck is one of those areas. Um, the other thing to remember in Canada is all of our training um, is mandated by each province. There are provincial training standards that are that exist in statute across each province, and police services and police training facilities are required to abide by those uh, provincial standards right. that are um, statutorily required. Are police officers anywhere in Canada ever allowed to uh, use a chokehold on a suspect? I know there are calls in the United States to, for a federal ban on a chokehold by police officers. Is that allowed in Canada, a chokehold? Chokeholds in Canada are prohibited, and they're not part of police training. Do police officers in Canada need more training and more oversight, in your opinion? 
Well, policing in Canada in particular is probably one of the most heavily regulated um, activities and professions that exists in this country. Uh, we've we've come a long way with respect to oversight. In most provinces, there are at least one, typically two, independent civilian-led oversight agencies that review any incident involving the police that occurs in a community in a particular province. Uh, I think we have uh, a ways to go to make sure that that's consistent across each province, but right. certainly in British Columbia, we have two independent civilian-led agencies. Police have a statutory obligation to inform those agencies when there's an issue related to uh, misconduct involving a police officer, and they have a statutory duty to inform the independent uh, investigations office if there's an incident involving a member of the public or civilian that where a serious injury occurs. So, you know, we're talking about two completely different uh, policing models and systems of regulating police activity when you talk about Canada and the United States. Okay, Des- despite that, though, there there are calls for reform here in Canada as well. And let me, let me play a clip here for you of federal NDP leader Jagmeet Singh, who, by the way, is going to be a guest on the show tomorrow. But here is the, the federal NDP leader talking about the need for changing to police uh, training and tactics. Jagmeet Singh. It is very clear we need systemic change when it comes to policing. There needs to be, there needs to be really clear training around de-escalation. We see far too many incidences, so many incidents where a, a tense situation escalates instead of de-escalating and their life is taken. There needs to be a focus on de-escalation. What do you think of that? Well, first, let me just say, you know, I, I don't know how much Jagmeet Singh knows about police training in the country of Canada. And it's unfortunate that in this very tragic uh, situation, you know, we've got people sort of jumping on board and making all kinds of uninformed, in my view, uninformed statements about policing in this country. Having said that, I mean, what was uninformed about what he said there? What was uninformed about what he said? Well, I'll get to that. But I, I think the important thing I want to acknowledge is, you know, we are hearing from people right across the country that they have concerns and we need to be listening to that and responding to it. And if we can do better, we need to do better. But the fact is that police training in this country includes a significant amount of de-escalation training significant amount of training around uh, trying to avoid, um, um, you know, your, your own biases influencing how you interact with different people in the community. You know, are, do we do everything perfectly all the time? No, we don't. Do we need to continue to strive to be better? Yes, we do. Should we be listening to people in our community that say they feel like they're being discriminated against or um, the, the environment they're in is not inclusive, absolutely we should, and we should continue to strive to address those issues and get better. But I don't think it's helpful to have um, elected officials, leaders in this country, um, making statements that, to me, sound very uninformed, given, like I said, the, the statutory requirements in this country with respect to police training. My guest is Tom Stamatakis. He's the president of the Canadian Police Association. I, I, I appreciate what you just said, but let me play another clip from Jagmeet Singh, the NDP leader here. Here he is talking about discrimination by police. Here's there Singh needs to again. be an end to discriminatory policing. 
which erodes public trust, carding and practices like carding, where people are stopped, particularly racialized people, particularly black people are stopped just because of the color of their skin. It erodes trust between the public and police. And that makes it harder for everyone. It makes society less safe. What do you think of that when he talks about carding or, I guess, racial profiling? Does that happen in Canada where police officers will stop a black person, a brown person, an Aboriginal person based on their color of their skin? Listen, there's not a police officer in this country and certainly not a police officer in a leadership position in this country that, that disagrees with the statement that we should not be involved in any kind of dis- discriminatory practice. That's That's an issue that's been... Uh, well discussed. The whole carding issue has been well examined. There have been numerous reports written about it. Uh, the the practice of carding in this country has is effectively been prohibited. Uh, but at the but at the same time, police do need to interact with the public. Uh, the the issue is how do we interact with the public, and are we doing it uh, the way that we should be in a non discriminatory um, uh, 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 way that uh, uh, hopefully results in a positive interaction between the police and the public every time the police interact with the citizens in this country. And that's what we should be striving for. And I think that that's what we are striving for in this country from a policing perspective. Right. We, we know that uh, police officers are human beings and nobody's perfect. And we know there are some bad cops out there. But do you think that there is systemic racism in the police system in Canada, that there's a racism sort of baked into the system in Canada? Well, you know, what I will say to that is it doesn't matter what I think. We're hearing very uh, loudly and clearly from people in this country who, uh, people of color, people uh, uh, from different different ethnic uh, uh, backgrounds, cultural backgrounds, that they feel that they're being discriminated against. And we need to pay attention to that. It's not up to me to tell them how they're feeling is wrong or right or whatever. I need to acknowledge, and we as a police community need to acknowledge that we have uh, groups in our communities across this country that feel that way. And so we need to try and understand why they feel that way and what we can do to address that so they're not feeling that way. So so, So we are, people do feel like they live in an inclusive society, that they're, that that their interactions are not um, informed by race or or discriminatory. That's what we need to be striving toward. And if if people in our country, in communities across the country, are saying that that's the way they feel, then we need to pay attention to that, and we need to find a way to address their concerns. All right, welcome back. Let's talk about the BC tourism industry, such an important part of our economy, but of course it's been devastated during this pandemic. We take a look at the travel restrictions that are still in place with the borders closed to non-essential traffic, with airlines pretty much grounded for people going on a vacation. Man, oh man, this is a, a sector of our economy that has just been hammered by this pandemic. Take a look at some of the numbers at uh, YVR. Uh, the number of arrivals there down 97 percent of international arrival arrivals. This is devastating for BC tourism, and this is the time when the industry should be ramping up for a busy summer. Now, the BC government promising help yesterday. BC Premier John Horgan 
uh, said that they are looking at help for the tourism industry. They will be rolling that out in the next couple of weeks. It will be focused on domestic tourism. So the international visitors still not coming, but could the industry be throwing a lifeline here with staycations and people staying at home within British Columbia and enjoying all the beautiful places we have to visit here? Let's check in now with Walt Judas. He is the CEO of the Tourism Industry Association of BC. Walt, it's nice to have you on the show again. Thanks for having me, Mike. Good morning. Thanks for being here. Hey, Walt, can you can you sum up how bad this has been for the industry? Do you have any stats, or how, how would you quantify it? It has, as you pointed out, been devastating for the industry. I think if you look at some regions around the province, if you combine all of the regions except, say, Metro Vancouver, three-quarters of the people that were employed in tourism no longer have a job, or those that were about to be hired for the busy peak season won't be hired this year. So it is significant. The damage has been done already. There are hopes, of course, for salvaging part of the season, but for the most part, operators aren't holding out much hope that uh, they'll see uh, any significant revenues for the remainder of the year. Okay, is there any idea how many jobs have been lost, how much revenue has gone down, how much, how much business has been depleted? It pretty much changes on a daily basis, but uh, I do know that 75,000 jobs, for example, uh, out of 110,000 jobs in all of the regions around the province, as I say, aside from Metro Vancouver, have been lost so far. Half wow. the restaurants uh, aren't yet open and may not open uh, for the foreseeable future, or if at all. There are a number of, uh, of indicators that show our revenue overall will be about a third of what it was in 2019. Maybe $7 billion if we're lucky, and we're normally a $20, $21 billion industry. So the damage, as I say, is significant, and um, we may see some positive signs with pent-up demand for local travel, to be sure, but it won't be enough to save the industry uh, in comparison to previous years. Wow. Okay. Such a bleak picture. I really feel for the people who have been hammered by the, by the situation because this is just such a great industry for our province. Now, yesterday, uh, BC Premier John Horgan was talking about a lifeline or some help for the industry uh, that could be rolled out in the next couple of weeks. What are you anticipating? I'm sure you've been talking to government. What what are you? What kind of help are you looking for, and what are you hoping to receive? Well, the kind of help that we've always been looking for is um, to address the liquidity issues with so many businesses on the brink of bankruptcy and those uh, trying to figure out how they can pay their monthly bills. There are fixed costs that businesses are obligated to pay and haven't been able to meet those needs. They certainly don't want to go into further debt by borrowing money, even with some of the federal government initiatives that are there. So looking for some kind of a working capital grant, whether that's at the provincial or federal level, is certainly paramount. The other thing that we do know is the government will be investing in local marketing, that is, within British Columbia and trying to encourage British Columbians to travel. There has been some federal contribution towards that that will go to community destination marketing organizations that will help. Will that be enough? That's the big question. It's doubtful that British Columbians traveling around the province 
will replace the international visitors that we normally see and those high-yield visitors and the amount of money that they leave in our destination annually is fairly significant, but at least it's a start, and it's really the only option that we have at present. Okay, you had Horgan yesterday trying to kind of accentuate the positive on on that front yesterday, saying that he believes that by promoting domestic tourism, so staycations or people stay within British Columbia's borders and and enjoy the natural beauty and all the attractions that we have in our own province, that maybe people don't even appreciate themselves and and we live here, which I, I think is a great idea. And he thinks that it could be a record-breaking summer for domestic tourism. Do, do you agree with him? Are you that optimistic? Because we still got travel restrictions in place, right? People are being told, don't do non-essential travel around the province. So how is that supposed to work? That's a very good question, Mike, and, and um, one that may be difficult to answer. There is pent-up demand, no question. People are already traveling, in fact, around the province for non-essential purposes. So we see with the bookings uh, with BC parks and campgrounds and backcountry campgrounds, we've seen an uptick in resorts and the number of reservations that they've taken largely from British Columbia residents. So we do expect a lot of BCers to travel around the province. And you're absolutely right. Most people don't know what's in our own backyard. So it behooves us to try to venture out a bit further. But the travel restrictions still remain. We're encouraged to stay local and to uh, experience local, which is good. But again, that won't be um, enough for tourism operators around the province. In fact, if you go to a place like the East Kootenays, most people from the lower mainland don't drive 12 hours to stay in the East Kootenays for any length of time. The bulk of their business is from Alberta, Alberta, probably 65% are in that range. So they're counting on more than British Columbians to be able to fill the gap, so to speak. And they're really hoping hoping that the borders will open at some point, both with uh, Alberta and certainly the American border at some point down the road as well. Speaking of Walt Judas from the Tourism Industry Association of BC, that travel, those travel restrictions that are still in place, I take your, I take your point that some people are still, are, are traveling around the province anyway, but there's still an official directive to a, avoid this kind of non-essential travel. Is it, is it frustrating at all for you to, to see the pandemic numbers of apparently getting under control? Uh, and at the same time, you have the premier saying, get out there and enjoy British Columbia. We're going to have a record-breaking summer of domestic tourism. At the same time, we've got health officials saying, no, you still got to stay, keep staying home. Do you think that the travel restrictions or advisory should be scaled back, at least within our own borders? It's difficult for me to comment on that based on what they know and I don't know on the health challenges that we have and and how the province is progressing on flattening the curve. But I will say that what one thing the industry is looking for is some clarity of messaging. If we're saying it's okay to travel starting in phase three or mid-June, and we're encouraging people to travel beyond their own home community or, or beyond their own region to other regions, that is definitely helpful. I think yeah. where some are confused is when you have BC parks that are essentially open to camping starting June 1st, but we're still encouraged to stay home. What, that's a message that people aren't quite computing. Um, 
on the one hand, it seems okay or it implies that it's okay to travel around the province. On the other hand, we are being encouraged to stay home. So uh, clarity and messaging will definitely help. I think what the Premier said yesterday about uh, potentially travel opening up throughout the province starting in mid-June and beyond is very encouraging. It's hopeful. It allows operators to at least begin planning but it even extends beyond that. I think what uh, industry is looking for is some indication of when it's okay to travel from places like Alberta, and we need some clear messaging there. As well, when it's okay to travel from the United States into British Columbia. We know the border is closed until June 21st. It's one thing to say it's closed until the 21st. It's quite another to say we are targeting an opening of July one or July 15, depending uh, on where we are again and where they are in flattening the curve. So it's that kind of uh, messaging and certainty that I think industry is looking for that will be very helpful in the planning stages and at least allow operators to look ahead to see where they might be able to get business from and how much they, uh, they need to staff up and ramp up to accommodate people. Okay, if I'm taking a look right now at the the BC government's restart plan for restarting the economy, and right now we're in still in phase two, correct? Correct. Yeah, phase three. Here's what it says: If transmission rates remain low or in decline, people can begin traveling throughout BC. That is phase three. Phase three, the target for phase three was June to September. We are in the month of June right now. So are you, I assume you're hoping for some sort of declaration from the government that phase three is beginning? Yes, no question. And I think uh, lifting of the state of emergency is also something that we would be looking for. Uh, because that, again, instills confidence that it's okay to travel, that uh, we are flattening the curve, that people are free to travel from community to community or beyond their own home region. And um, and that kind of certainty will definitely be helpful. Okay, here's what I want to do, Walt. I'll jump in there. We'll take a break. We'll come back. We'll talk more about the BC tourism industry uh, really suffering right now through this pandemic, looking for hope. Uh, the government talking now about a program that will be laid out in, in the next few weeks, next couple of weeks, to stimulate the local domestic tourism industry, uh, which is a good idea. But at, at some point, you've got to declare that we're in phase three and that it's okay for people to start traveling again throughout the province. And that, that is certainly the plan for the government. But remember, it re- it depends on the transmission rate of the virus and we saw new cases announced by the government yesterday this is mike smith it's uh time for our u.s political panel so much going on south of the border today in minneapolis minnesota there is a memorial service for george floyd the black man who died of course under the knee of a white police officer setting off the more than a week now of protests and mayhem on the streets of America. So much going on politically in the United States as well with U.S. President Donald Trump, 
saying that he is willing to deploy U.S. military personnel on the streets of American cities to restore order. Let's talk about all of that now with our U.S. political panel. Very pleased to welcome back to the show Brian Kennedy. He's a former White House correspondent uh, when he was a journalist. And now uh, he's a full-time government relations consultant uh, based in San Diego. I'm very pleased to welcome him back, Brian. Thanks for coming on. Hey, it's nice to be back, Mike. Uh, hi, Brian. Thanks for doing this. Also on the line, very pleased to welcome to the show for the first time, Chris Salcedo. He is the host of the Chris Salcedo Show in Texas. Chris, thanks a lot for doing this. Hey, Mike. No problem, man. Great to be here. Okay, fellas, I, th- I appreciate both of you. Let's have a little listen, first of all, to U.S. President Donald Trump, and here he is. I am mobilizing all available federal resources, civilian and military, to stop the rioting and looting, to end the destruction and arson, and to protect the rights of law-abiding Americans, including your Second Amendment rights. Therefore, Okay, U.S. President Donald Trump. Chris, there's been some blowback, to say the least, to to Trump's uh, threat to deploy U.S. military on American streets. Do you support the president on this? What are your thoughts? Well, I don't think any American relishes the idea of American troops being on in American neighborhoods. That being said, we have a bunch of of left-wing municipalities, left-wing governments, whether they be on the state level or the local level, who have abandoned their citizens to uh, the rioters, to those who are killing uh, mostly majority minority people in these riots in the wake of this tragic death and this this needless death of George Floyd. So when the president says he doesn't threaten to use the, the United States military, he's promising that he will restore order for the myriad, the, the tens of thousands of innocent American citizens who had nothing to do with the death of George Floyd and are now being abandoned and exploited by these 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 leftists who are wandering throughout our streets and frankly killing people the death toll has increased i think officially i was looking at some associated press numbers 12 people have died innocent people many of them minorities at the hands of these rioters and the american president says well that's not right either it's not right that george floyd is dead and it's not right that more american blood is being spilled at the hands of these leftists Brian Kennedy, your thoughts. Well, let's just go back to what Trump said. Uh, First of all, he's going to use the Insurrection Act, and that's dubious at best if he can do so. But the blowback, you know, coming back is from, look, his former defense secretary, General Mattis, who he once called one of the greatest generals in the U.S., who came back and said his tactics are like Nazi-like. Wow. and said the president has no idea what's in the Constitution, doesn't care about the Constitution, and he's a threat to the Constitution. That's from his former defense secretary. His former chief of uh, the Joint Chiefs uh, chairman, Admiral Mullen, said basically almost the same thing. He can't do that. And the military is not, I don't think, is willing to rush out and follow his orders, even though he can give them. Because even his own current defense secretary, Esper, turned around and said he opposes using military uh, force to put down uh, these protests. So uh, the president's got a big problem with uh, his own military and whether or not they'll follow the orders, that remains to be seen. Look, these protests are, are, were a match waiting to be lit. And it just so happens the George Floyd uh, death and the video, the subsequent video, that 
lit the match. I mean, it's been simmering for quite some time. And, I, you know, tragically, there are deaths. Uh, you know, I don't know. I, I don't condone the deaths. I don't condone the thugs that are out there uh, looting either because I don't think that helps their cause whatsoever. And hopefully things are calming down now because it looks like the looting, the looting and the rioting is sort of turning into more just straight peaceful right. protests. And Chris, uh, that's what, the way it should be. Chris, what do you say to that? Does Trump have a problem here with some of his own uh, military officials and Pentagon officials kind of pushing back against his, his plan? Well, as, as stated, the Insurrection Act is legal. The Insurrection Act is constitutional. And, and thankfully, it hasn't been needed to be used much here in these United States. But I think a lot of people would have a hard time classifying uh, the looting and the burning of neighborhoods, uh, the uh, the uh, rushing of police precincts, the, the subsequent 12 deaths as calling those protests. I think a lot of Americans say, hey, when you're killing, when you're shooting officers point blank in the head and leaving them uh, nearly brain dead, that goes beyond something that you would classify as a protest. That goes into something that's a little different. Uh, so the peaceful protests, which the president has been very clear he supports, uh, and most common sense Americans support, I think what you're seeing the president responding to is not to protests, but to those who are of the extreme left wing who want to use this as an excuse to mm. spread mayhem, to kill others wantonly and to destroy as we have seen i'll give you one example and it's just one out of a myriad examples the rolex store in new york city was looted of 2.5 million dollars worth of watches because you know nothing says racial equality like lifting a bunch of watches that don't belong to you and stealing those so Americans know and understand that what is going on out there with the fires, the arson, the looting, that is not a protest. Yeah. But, that but, is an insurrection. But, and but I believe Chris, the President of the United States is right, right to look at it that way. But Chris, when you say yes. the, the President supports legal protesters, uh, what about the peaceful protesters who were cleared out from in front of the White House for his photo op the other day with the Bible? Yeah, you mean the, you mean the ones that were throwing bottles of urine? At police officers, you mean those 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 peaceful protesters? Uh, the president of the United oh. States wanted to make and rather and I, I will I will acknowledge it was rather symbolic, but symbolism does count for something. Uh, those who are being critical of the president of the United States standing up in front of a church that was burned by the very rioters that I mentioned that would burn down a place of worship. How worthwhile? is their cause if they want to burn down a place of God. Brian, Brian, what do you say to that? Well, well, let me let me explain. First of all, that protest was absolutely peaceful. He wanted to show a, a force because he'd been hanging around in his bunker on Friday, you know, saying, I'm going to sick up the vicious dogs and I'm going to bring in the heavy artillery. That was Friday. So this is how the photo op came, came about. And let's talk about the photo op, okay? The basement of the church was burned. The bishop of that church hit the roof and severely criticized the president for holding a photo op, a political photo op, in the midst of a peaceful protest that he had just cleared out. That's the bishop of that church. And here he is holding the Bible upside down. You can't even put it right side up. And I noticed that Ivanka Trump was there, and she didn't get in the photo op 
And I go back to Defense Secretary Esper said he didn't even know they were going there. He thought they were going out to talk to uh, the police and, and the troops right. outside. Chris, and Chris. he subsequently started having to back down his shit. But I want to say one last thing. Yeah. Chris keeps on saying this is leftist. Well, let me tell you something. The FBI arrested three people last night from a white supremacist group with Molotov cocktails that they were going to use in a protest in Las Vegas. That's not wanting the destruction of property and possibly murder. And if the FBI hadn't have been onto it, I wonder what would happen. And I wonder if more white supremacist groups are not going to join these protests and cause mayhem and say, it's oh, it's all those Chris, protesters who are Chris, mostly people of color. Chris, what do you say to that? Give me, a, give me a quick response, and we'll take a break and take some phone calls. Chris Salcedo. Yeah, I can guarantee you there are there are a lot of white leftists out there. As a matter of fact, there's video out there of black individuals confronting them as they were wearing their masks, these little Antifa thugs, as they were wearing their masks, writing Black Lives Matter on the side of a Starbucks, and the black community confronted them saying, hey, what are you doing? You're not, you're not black, and they're going to blame us for that. So, no, there are a lot of left-wing extremists who happen to be white who are out there trying to operate and give a bad name to those in the black community. And I, as a Latino, can appreciate being misrepresented by, by white leftists. Okay, guys, here's what well, I'll do. Well, they're white supremacists, and I don't think they're left. Okay, like guys. Theory. All right, welcome back. We've assembled our U.S. political panel, Brian Kennedy and Chris Salcedo. Hey, guys, I'm really interested in your take on the political landscape in America right now, whether Trump is, is threatened for his reelection in the fall with everything that's going on. Have a listen to this. Here is the presumptive Democratic uh, candidate for President Joe Biden. The American story is a story about action and reaction. That's how history works. We can't be naive about it. I wish I could say that hate began with Donald Trump and will end with him. It didn't, and it won't. Okay, Joe Biden. Hey, Chris, you're in Texas there. Uh, Trump won Texas in the last presidential election. What What do you think his chances are in the next election against Biden? Well, in Texas, I, well, I, yeah, in Texas, I think it's fine. And uh, it bears pointing out uh, all the polling that is out there right now shows that Mr. Biden is is up, but the the president's team hasn't even started uh, this campaign yet. There have been a couple of other things going on, <laughs> the riots we've been talking about. And, and, of course, uh, the battle with the China virus. So there's, uh, once the president starts getting out his message, I think you're going to see those polls tightening up. I don't want to take anything for granted. But I think the president asked a fair question. Joe Biden has been in American politics for 43, 44 years. And uh, if he had all the solutions to all the problems plaguing America, why didn't he tell Obama? Because I can tell you race relations were in the toilet uh, when Barack Obama was occupying the Oval Office. Brian, Brian Kennedy, what do you say to that? Well, first of all, race relations have been a problem, not just during the Obama you know, administration. The one person Trump really fears is Obama. And surprisingly, because having covered the White House, a, a former president, you know, literally picking on a sitting president is usually unheard of. But it seems that Obama, Obama's decided to pick on Trump for his handling of the virus, which he called nothing but ineptness and chaotic and now the handling of these protesters and let's be clear the polls all show on just those two issues trump's underwater with the majority of americans handling the protest and handling the virus handling the virus with 33 percent approval i think it's 38 39 percent uh for the protest okay. but let me come back to what's ahead for donald trump 
He knows he's in trouble. That's why he's trying to avoid the virus and trying to get any issue that he can to stick. Like now he was going to be the wartime president. Now it's I'm the law and order president. He thinks he's Richard Nixon, maybe, who won in 1968 on that platform of law, uh, you know, law and order. order. But let's order. be clear. Lyndon Bain Johnson stepped down because of the Vietnam War. Bobby Kennedy would have been the nominee for the Democrats if he was not assassinated in Los Angeles in 68. And hence, they got Hubert Humphrey, who didn't really want to run, but he was sort of pushed into it because of the uh, assassination and lost. I guarantee you, well, I, I'll let a bet. If Bobby Kennedy had ran, Richard Nixon would not have been president, and his law and order campaign would not have okay. worked. Okay, and I don't think it's going to work now for Donald Trump. We just got a few minutes left here, guys. Try and squeeze in a call or two. Greg calling on the open line in Surrey. Hi, Greg, go ahead. This gets me every single time, and this is a problem in North America, not just America, not just Canada, is you have... One person on the radio that is ideological right. You have one person on the radio that's ideological left. And all they're going to do is because they're so blinded by their ideology that they have zero ability to actually converse in some sort of manner with one another that makes any sense, that makes people think, hmm, maybe we can actually come to, to a solution on something. But no, all we hear is it's, it's the right is this problem, oh, but the left is this well, what, problem. What is your solution? What is your solution? Guys, what is your solution? Solu- I, if you can't see both sides of an argument, if you only cherry-pick certain facts, you are always going to believe exactly what your ideology says. You have to look at both sides of the argument, gentlemen. If you do not, all you are is a talking point. Okay, That's let's get, let's get Chris, Chris Salcedo. Chris, America is a divided country. Is there any middle ground, in your opinion, to come together? Oh, sure there is. If, uh, and the gentleman is right in one respect. If we can agree on a certain set of values or a certain set of principles, what, what some people articulate as an ideology is a certain set of values. What you value, uh, those on the conservative side, the right side, uh, covet individual liberty and freedom and constitutional limited government the other side doesn't and that's where the discussion and the middle some sort of middle ground must be reached but you've got to have some sort of common ground and increasingly sadly we are seeing less and less of that common ground in the united states brian he's got a minute left brian kennedy well i i agree with the caller there is and chris and i have just a different view of things okay but when I covered the White House and when I covered Congress away back then, everybody got along. I mean, sure, they'd stand up in the House, they'd stand up in the Senate, yell at each other. Then they'd go out for dinner and figure out a way to get something done. And, if, you know, for that caller's point of view, the first step should be Congress. Instead of being so politically divided, it's time maybe that they sat down and finally did something uh, for the country. Okay. I know that they did. The, uh, they, they sent out those... Uh, relief packages they agreed on that but they can agree on a lot more and i think it's that's the signal if we could see this congress actually sit down and work together instead of just being ideologically divided like that caller had brought up we'd get some things done okay guys go back to a different era